Thanks for tuning in to the School Crisis Podcast. I'm Dr. Gabriel Lomas, Professor of Counseling at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut. The purpose of the podcast is to share insights from school crisis and trauma experts. And now our episode. Um, I'm here with Dr. Will Marlene. Uh, Dr. Marlene was born and raised in Ohio. He has an earned doctorate in ministry that he earned in 1997 with research focused on leadership, teamwork, and mentoring. Will was appointed as executive director for the National Organization for Victim Assistance, or NOVA. Uh, They're headquartered in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, he was there from July 2007 until July 2015. During his tenure, he revitalized the organization, expanding their staff and tripling their operating budget. And under his leadership, NOVA was awarded a, a Department of Defense contract to deploy the Sexual Assault Advocate Certification Program for all branches of the U.S. military. Marlene pioneered other programs focusing on cyber theft and victim advocacy for NOVA. And as a professional speaker and trainer, Dr. Marlene has presented over 10,000 10, people throughout his tenure on a variety of topics, including crisis management, intervention, and response team training. Uh, additionally, on leadership through transition, building high-performing performing teams, and navigating the justice system. He has consulted on or deployed to 43 crises across the country, including numerous incidents with ho- high-profile coverage, and has engaged in professional broadcast and print media with over 50 interviews. Currently, Dr. Marlin is a consultant to the fields of crisis response and victim advocacy. Uh, he currently resides in, in Alexandria, Virginia. So, Will, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Gabriel. It's great to be with you. Really good. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome to have you here today, and I just wanted to talk a little bit uh, about our purpose today. You know, um, I, I'm a professor at Western Connecticut State University, and uh, we are located um, in Danbury, Connecticut, which is pretty close to um, the, the, the school shootings in Sandy Hook. Um, um, and um, since that time period, since, uh, since, since 1214, we have, um, well, I have, I, I've, I've focused my research on um, school safety. And part of that process is really developing these podcasts so I'm, I'm very happy to have you with us today to talk about, about your contributions to the field of school safety. Well, thank you. This is, uh, it's a great opportunity for us to chat, and I appreciate the great work that you're doing. It's really important. Hey, the feeling is mutual, Will. So why don't we get started now? I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about, about your personal side. Uh, I'd like to get started that way. So um, in your bio, it said you're, you're an Ohio native, but can you tell me a little bit about about where you grew up and, and how your maybe how your childhood life has impacted your um, your professional work. Sure, I can talk about that. I'll try not to belabor 50 years of life, but <laughs> growing up on a farm is uh, a unique privilege uh, anymore, and there are very few people that get that opportunity. But I can tell you that, like many people, you know, our childhood shapes us in many different ways and uh, the experiences of life positively as well as the challenges of life negatively contribute to who we become. I, to to be honest and uh, wonderfully candid in this context, I experienced uh, what I would call a a pristine childhood. My dad is a farmer, my mother as a school teacher. I got to see them every day. You know, it was a great life growing up there. You get to be a teenager, it's a little different. You know, it seems like uh, get me out of here kind of thing, but I learned the values, you know, of hard work, but I had the freedom of life. I also 
from that, though, recognize as I began to experience life as an adult that people didn't have that kind of experience growing up. And one of the things that shaped me in my childhood was not something I experienced, but something I observed. When I was in junior high, there was a, a schoolmate who's, uh, who was basically abducted at random, uh, taken hostage because the person who took him hostage was escaping a robbery. And it just happened that the guy carjacked uh, you know, this, in, this fellow student of mine and his mother, and they were held hostage in this car and surrounded by police. It, it ended positively and safely, but for a period of many hours in this tiny community in Ohio, very rural community, you know, it was a very desperate situation, and, you know, that imprinted on me heavily, the, the impact of something like that traumatically, how it rippled through our community. And I take that and other experiences, you know, the positive ones, and I bring that into the world and consider myself really a volunteer for the work of this. I did not have something negative happen to me specifically that drove me to the world of crisis response, but, but certainly those kinds of things contributed to the past. Well, thanks for sharing that, Will. I mean, I, I certainly, I think for some people, uh, you know, crisis, negative crisis events have, you know, drive them to the work, but sometimes, you know, um, uh, other life experiences bring them there, and I, I appreciate mm -hmm. you sharing that. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, when people think about these kinds of things, m many times if you're, you know, uh, forced into it, you know, not by choice, people, as you know, take that and do incredible things with it. And that's really meaningful. It's meaningful to them, but it's also meaningful to other people. It's also significant, I think, to recognize those who sometimes choose to get into it, but we bring a different perspective, of course. We don't bring necessarily the direct pain and trauma of that, but it, that isn't to say that we haven't learned from the people who have, and uh, that's what I've tried to pay close attention to. When you're talking about dealing with you know, crisis response, you're talking about dealing with traumatized people. I spent 10 years as a law enforcement chaplain, and that was really an, an initial professional perspective and experience driving me to understand the needs of people in crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is everybody has something to contribute, whether you've had a negative experience or whether you're just career professionally trained. That's right. I mean, we all can speak to that. Some people who are harmed by a crisis, a, a crime, those kinds of things, they, they make different choices maybe about how they respond to it. And some people, candidly, as you well know, don't respond well or in a healthy way. It's a fairly small percentage, I think. Still, you know, the vernacular of post-traumatic stress disorder comes in because we recognize that post-trauma stress can be a factor that we have to address that we have to learn to cope with and deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're starting to make a nice transition into our next piece, the, me the meteor piece. So let's go there now. Uh, from, what, from, okay. from your experience, what are the key elements for school crisis response that have to be followed to maximize support for, for victims? That, that's a you know, really great question. And we, we're learning a lot about this, and I know a lot of schools have really engaged this. 
of course, the first key element for a school crisis response is actually a plan. And, you know, that's, that's so uh, parochial, it seems, in a sense, to discuss it. But the fact is that many times people, schools, entities, enterprises don't have plans, but especially in the cool school context. Today, I think many schools do have them. We're, we've learned enough, and it's almost an, an, a requirement in many sectors to do that. Secondly, that plan has to be practiced to some degree. It has to be uh, reviewed and engaged. Because I've been in more than one context where with a school incident, uh, particularly as, as in my law enforcement time, where significant things went on, and in one, to give you one visual image, uh, there was a fatality of some students over a lunch hour, and when I walked into the principal's office in this context, she was looking over the school yearbook, trying to figure out who the students were, and all of her staff was circled around her desk watching her do this. And I, and I knew, you know, instinctively, I knew it was kind of a coping mechanism. You could tell she was trying to focus on, you know, the importance of these kids that mattered to her. But visually, I looked up and to the back of her desk, I could see this, the, the crisis response plan sitting on the shelf. And so I'm not critical of her, mind you. And this was, I won't tell you how long ago it was. It was a long time ago. So there was a plan. But the, the fact is she was struggling and people were not helping her say to her, look, let's deploy the plan. It's right there. You know, let me help you, support you in this. And so that's kind of what I ended up doing, saying to her, hey, there's a plan there, let me help you. And because she was traumatized, that was the thing that I recognized in the context of deploying a plan. If you're in charge and you're traumatized by this, then that will impact your deployment of that plan. The third thing is really the notion of recognizing what we, we, we call the walking worried. So we understand that there are you know, primary victims, secondary victims, and we usually describe that by the impact on those circles that radiate out from an incident. You know, the, those who are the students, let's say, who are directly impacted, the ones that uh, are injured, that their family members for the deceased if there are fatalities and for the injured. But many times, particularly in a school context, there are people who are traumatized, younger and then older in school systems, and as well as the students and staff, and we also need to have a plan for how we support and serve them. And that's a really important element because as the walking worried, we want them to be able to understand uh, how to cope and have good coping mechanisms and resources so that they also can contribute to the overall health and well-being of that school community. Yeah, thank you. Wise words there, Will. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's. I too have also seen, you know, many many schools and, and organizations who um, um, struggle with in developing uh, strong plans and then and then implementing the practice, uh, the practicing mm -hmm. of the plan. So, I appreciate you pointing that out, and then also the concern for people afterwards and the the uh, the others, the family members, the the students that are not in that building, and 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 the, the staff and the teachers and the other folks That's right. that are related. Wise words. I appreciate that. How about how about a case example? Is are you are you comfortable sharing a case that that can help us understand how those key elements really um, 
uh, interplay with uh, with a good crisis response? Sure. Yeah, I've I've got one from a long time ago in my career, and that makes it quite a bit safe in terms of the discussion here because uh, having engaged in a lot of different critical incidents, uh, a lot of them high profile, you know, I'm, I'm very careful there because I don't want to expose anybody there. But uh, many years ago, I got a call on a Monday morning, and this is pertaining to my work as a law enforcement chaplain. And the school counselor asked me if I could come to the school library because there were 80 students in the library who were distraught over the fatality of two students over the weekend. And it was a car crash that uh, took their lives. Now, it happened that I was aware of the car crash as well because working with law enforcement, it actually it turned out to be a situation where uh, an individual stole the car and then he swung by the house of his girlfriend and they went off joyriding and crashed the car and they were both killed. The challenge was at the time that uh, it was not easy to identify either of the victims of the car crash. But I brought that knowledge, that awareness, as I entered into the school library. So I'll give you the visual image of the school library. It was a group, it was groups of students, not a group of students, it was groups of students. So, you know, it was kind of classic cliques. You know, over here were the cheerleaders, over here were the jocks, over here were the, you know, the goth, and so on. And then over in this corner were all the school counselors, and they were in their own little clique because they didn't know what to do. And it was, it was a visual image of all the things that we've talked about. First of all, they didn't have a plan. So they, their plan was apparently to call me. And I'll admit at the time, you know, I was doing what I did, but I didn't have a plan for responding to this kind of scenario myself. So uh, I walked in, I see these images of these people, and then I realized as well, th these are the different groupings of students who were impacted. And it turns out that the students, the two students that were killed were extremely popular. So their death rippled through the school environment. It was a high school environment, of course. And from that, you know, they they had different needs as well. And so it, it was a it's a real clear picture of the need to plan so that we're prepared. And of course training in light of that so we're ready. But also these different segments of the population who they knew these students, you know, they weren't family members of them. Some of them could have been close friends, potentially, but they were these different populations. We call them sometimes risk affinity groups or, uh, you know, a cohesion cohort. And the need for us to speak specifically to those groups and help guide those individually, the groups themselves didn't want to really intermingle. And that's another recognition here. We couldn't really force them all together as 80 people to have a conversation and engage them. So we had to address them as a population themselves because they had their own version of language and culture, as you well know, in a school context. So it really, uh, that was telling. I mean, I'm telling this story, and it's, uh, yeah, it's 20, probably 25 years old, and it's so visceral and visual to me. The moment I walked in, I can see those faces, and I remember the layout of that library because it was so pertinent how dramatic and traumatizing this was for them.
pretty. That's, that sounds pretty profound. What? Yeah, it was. It was pretty intense. I can tell you. What? What transpired next? You know, how, how did you ha how did you deal with eighty students? Well, you know, it was uh, again. I'm I'm not telling you that I had the right plan at the time because, quite honestly, immediately after that, I sought training to understand this, and this is actually where I began to get connected to Nova. <laughs> ironically, the organization that I ended up leading, I first was introduced through the training that Nova has in crisis intervention, but but. At that time, I hadn't had that kind of training. I'd, I really had my street experience in dealing with these traumatizing situations. So what we ended up doing was I ended up huddling with the guidance counselors. And in fairness, they were guidance counselors. Today, you know, many schools will have a clinical uh, counselor of some kind, social worker, as well as guidance, and they work together. But at that time, it was less about that. And the guidance counselors, bless them, you know, we huddled. And we formulated a plan to kind of divide and conquer, to address those various groups. Uh, as I recall, I don't remember the, all of the specifics there, but as I recall, we deployed a member of, uh, you know, the social work, uh, the, I'm sorry, the uh, guidance counselors. You know, one person took a group. And then we worked through, unfortunately, you know, we created a very quick protocol of things to talk about and you know I know better than to do that I think we had good instincts because we knew students and we you know would we dealt with people uh, but I, I was you know two years later after having some training I was far more prepared to have a consistent protocol that we all knew what to do in fact they wouldn't have needed to even call me because unless they had other issues you know they their team was ready to handle that and that's what we ended up doing we ended up de deploying a crisis response team in that school environment it was a fairly large school district, nothing like some of the some of the districts that gave your experience with in Texas. Uh, but you know, six thousand students in uh, in Ohio, which is in in Columbus, Ohio. You know, that was pretty significant. Wow, wow. It sounds like uh, during those times you were sort of one of the pioneers, kind of kind of working with Nova, developing protocols, writing the foundation for for uh, uh, crisis response. And some of the case uh, material that you just shared with me, um, you know, I, I appreciate your, the courage you have to, to share that, that, um, that it was still developing, you know, and um, it kind of transitions nicely into the, the, the next question about uh, common clinical errors that you see occur um, when people respond to crises. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an interesting question there. I mean, I'll be careful. Uh, because I'm not, you know, formally a clinician in this sense, but, you know, observations that I would make revolve around the fact that many times the initial response doesn't have to be too complicated. We parallel this sometimes to medical first aid, where with a bit of training, we can help stabilize, normalize people. And so the, the vernacular of psychological first aid has emerged in this regard. I'm careful there because, you know, some entities use that to define a specific kind of training, and I'm not in this context. I'm, I'm simply saying, you know, with some training, and I believe everybody should if they're going to do that, uh, people can enter into a, a critical context, a crisis, and help people. And many times, you know, even professionals are asking, well, what do I do? I've 
you know, I've been a trainer for NOVA, and I've trained the crisis response protocols. It's about a, it's a 24-hour training. And, you know, there's lots of mental health professionals that end up in these. And the reason is is because they're looking for that crisis protocol, not the clinical sit-down where, you, you know, there's no time pressure, there's no trauma stress uh, associated with the incident, uh, associated with an incident, you know, People can be in crisis, no question, when they're ha- when they're going through a counseling. But the idea of critical incident is not there, and uh, they want to know, you know, what are the best ways to approach this? What are the best practices? And so, you know, all of that is a bit of a background. I think commonly there's there's this notion that, you know, we have to sit down with a person and engage at a level that is more clinical, that is is uh, more engaging in a might be a longer-term relationship. We could have a relationship with that student or that individual, but really there are things that we can apply in a meaningful way, in a simple way, that are trauma mitigation, trauma education, to help people understand what is happening with them, what is happening to them, and also to affirm relationships around them. And so, you know, it might be a temptation, I think, for clinicians sometimes to feel like, you know, we've got to sit with a person and unpack it all, and that's not necessarily the case. That can happen in an acute clinical context, acute therapeutic care, that certainly some folks, some students who go through these things might need, you know, regular uh, mitigation, regular counseling. But recognizing that we can get in, we can help support people, and even just the connectedness is significant. You know, Kai Erickson was the guy who talked about trauma. You can look him up. He's, he's uh, documented certain incidents that he evaluated. But um, this is a paraphrase of what he said, that, that trauma tears at the social fabric. And it, it's interesting that you can have a, a group of people in a mass casual incident, and they have that experience together. And they will say individually, you know, I feel so alone. And that tends to demonstrate this, the social fabric that's being ripped at. Trauma has that ability. So what we want to do is continue to reaffirm social fabric and connect people. So when, say, uh, adults, staff, clinicians, social workers in a school context connect with students and connect the students to one another, that in and of itself is highly beneficial. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Will. That's that's great feedback. And, you know, as I have ventured into this world over my career, I, I have to affirm the, the same sentiment. You know, the, the clinical training that, that, a, that a typical uh, clinical program would provide is so focused on, on, um, on, on um, deeper psychological issues and, and really uh, mm-hmm. doesn't always focus on, uh, on the needs of people who are experiencing a disaster or a crisis. And the, the approach That's that right. you take and, and, and the, the kind of work that you do can really be quite different. That's right. Well, my analogy, Gabe, is let's say you're a brain surgeon and you come across, come upon a car crash, and there's you know significant physical injuries there. Well, you're not going to do brain surgery, even though you're a brain surgeon. What mm-hmm. are you going to do? You're going to do basic first aid, try to stabilize. You're going to use your medical experience for sure. No way, you, you know, we're not minimizing that. But you're also going to call the EMTs in the squad, and you're going to try to support that context and stabilize that context until those first responders can help, can arrive. And that's what we're looking at here, where with meaningful
training, and I'm all about training in this context. Number one, because training always helps people, and good training really helps people. But the second thing good training does is it coordinates people. So if you and I have the same training, whatever that training is, and we go into a situation, we're already working together. We already have a plan, as opposed to different protocols and things, all of which can be meaningful in their own right. But, you know, we ought to train on the same page so that we can work out of that same page. So I'm, I'm tracking with you as well. You know, it's, it's what I like to say is, you know, crisis counseling, and what we're really describing here is not counseling, but that's kind of vernacular. The crisis counseling is very different than the clinical situations that you're describing where you're, just, where you're talking with people individually specifically about their needs that they have. Absolutely. Well, thanks for underscoring that. Well, why, don't we, why don't we transition now? You've already kind of covered this next question, but I want to make sure that it give you the opportunity to talk more about it if you'd like. Uh, what, what are some things that the, the community members, stakeholders, such as parents, teachers, and uh, other, other you know, community agencies, what can they do to help a, in a crisis uh, situation when a school is, is in crisis? Yeah, that's really, that's really good. You know, a lot has been learned over the years, and unfortunately, so much of it has been learned from negative situations like Com Columbine, Sandy Hook, uh, the Virginia Tech tragedy. And these kinds of things remind us, wait a minute, we need, to, we need to reinforce a plan, and we need to think more broadly about the needs of people. And that's why the, the challenge comes in for us really to train as, for, as responders in some official capacity. If you're a teacher or if you're a school official, if you're a, a community member that has an official responsibility, there is a diligence that's required, which, re, you know, really demands some form of training and preparation. What parents get in that and, let's say, students, I mean, students can be trained as well. We can, we can teach students. We ought to be able to. That's what school's about. So we can teach them in, in terms of these things. But in reality, when something bad happens, you know, it is chaos. That's, that's the definition of these kinds of crises and disasters. I, I would contend that, you know, a continual focus on training is important and preparation and even meaningful conversation about it, simple ways to, you know, prepare. And uh, we're learning that, you know, unfortunately, you know, we used to, growing up, I had, you know, fire drills and the like. But it's always fascinating to look back at that because the fire drill was always, you know, we heard the bell and we all lined up and we marched out. Well, in the midst of a crisis and a chaos, there's, that's not really a, a very accurate example of training and preparation. There's a fair bit of chaos. Every so often they would pull one student away to see what, you know, people would do. But that really isn't a realistic preparation environment. And that's one of the things I think – would be helpful is a realistic uh, preparation environment, not just going through the plan, pull the bell, everybody walks out, but, you know, this is a drill, but, uh, you know, there's got to be some chaos added to that dimension to see how we behave. In my work now as a consultant, I'm, I'm working a lot with higher ed, and uh, I'm, I'm actually supporting an effort called the 32 National Campus Safety uh, Initiative and 32 NCSI, and it's about campus safety. And it's a, it's a really great self-assessment that schools can initiate to say, in various areas of safety and security, 
it asks questions, you know, what do you have a plan and so on. So it's a really good, great way for universities and institutions of higher learning to engage safety, and that's a big focus today. I think it will migrate the other direction as well for uh, other institutions, elementary and, uh, you know, primary, secondary, to be able to do the very same thing and create an environment where not that we live in fear, but we live in uh, preparation. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is that is really that key element is just to prepare, prepare, prepare. Yep, prepare and and create an environment where it's okay to discuss those concerns, uh, particularly students, and but also having in that preparation an aftermath consideration, not just you know w we want to prevent things, and that that's about paying attention and about having good procedures and a lot of different things that revolve around that. But in terms of crisis response, it really is about taking a holistic view. Well, what will, what are the needs that exist in the aftermath? And making sure that those are inventoried and we have a plan to address those as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, well, let's transition now. It sounds like you are, you know, you're a leader in the field and, and you're preparing for the future. What do you see on the horizon for schools in, in regard to school safety and crisis response? Well, I... I'm, I'm optimistic about the potential for us to learn and to prepare. We, we need to create habits, and sometimes those are challenging on the front end, right, changing habits. But once we get into that routine, then it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the space shuttles that we used to have. Most of their energy was spent breaking, or breaking into orbit, in other words, escaping gravity. And so what we need to do is we kind of need to escape the gravity, the pull that revolves around kind of a thinking, well, this will never happen here. And, you know, it, it's always a bit of a balance because you never want to say, oh, this is going to happen here because that's negative and that's, it really sounds kind of uh, fear-mongering. But at the same time, what we, what we miss there is we think that these, huge mass casualty incidents will never happen here. And we hope they don't in anybody's community that's listening. Mm -hmm. At the same time, many times on a regular basis, difficult things happen, and they're what we would consider lower profile. There's not necessarily huge media interest, and yet the ripples throughout from that what would be considered a small-scale incident, they, they are still there. Mm -hmm. And unless we're attuned to them, Unless we're looking for them, we don't realize that there are people in crisis, people in trauma. And so what I see is a greater awareness, not just of how to deal and prepare with these mass casualty situations, but really how to deal with the traumatic things that happen to members of our community and be prepared to support them and the people around them that are touched by that in many different ways. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's great words of wisdom. It it sounds like uh, I I totally agree with you. Building awareness is going to be uh, it's going to be critical for the future, so that we're not operating out of fear. And I think that when 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 schools you know uh, are prepared for, for they're practicing and preparing for big events, then when those those uh, smaller events occur, we're just better able to handle them you know as they come mm -hmm. along. That's right. That's exactly right.
Hey, Will, uh, I appreciate your time today. Before, before we, we make this transition to close, I, I, I'm just wondering if you, if you could put your finger on one or two key resources for listeners. What, what do you recommend? Is there, is there a certain book or a certain type of training protocol, something that you would recommend that listeners um, look into and consider, consider um, uh, picking up themselves? Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would certainly recommend people who are in the vocation at some level considering the National Organization for Victim Assistance Community Crisis Response Team Training. That's a long phrase, but I mean, I am, uh, you know, no longer leading the organization, but I certainly celebrate the work of the organization, and that particular training pro- protocol has been, has been monumental in so many ways. And just as a little bit of history, you know, that I think NOVA's crisis, first crisis response team was deployed in, 1986. So uh, the organization has been deploying, has been training and deploying people and has been building crisis response teams in states and in many school districts for a long, long time, actually. And to be honest, it, uh, the organization and the founders were doing that stuff before anybody was even thinking about it, talking about it, or considered it even a viable concern. So Today, you know, having trained tens of thousands of people in this, I think it really is a viable uh, training mechanism and a preparation mechanism for anybody who wants it. Uh, the other thing I mentioned is in higher ed, and, you know, I think you're, you kind of span both here, don't you? Because mm-hmm. I know you have this wonderful concern and consideration for the, the school districts in Connecticut, but you're also a part of a, you know, institute, an institution of higher learning. So... As I mentioned, the 32 National Campus Safety Initiative, uh, which is, you know, it, it's at 32ncsi.org, that really is a great opportunity for uh, folks at, to voluntarily talk and engage on issues of campus safety. I contend that many of high schools are huge campuses that have, some, in some ways, similar issues, commonly not resident, so it could be a boarding school, but with the public schools, huge campuses, and a variety of challenges surrounding campus safety. And so uh, a lot can be learned, and we should be sharing that information, you know, in as many ways as possible. Thanks, Will. I have to agree, you know, out of all the training that I've had in in my career, I'd have to agree with you that the NOVA training is probably what I keep uh, close at heart. In fact, the, the NOVA training protocol I used to, copy and, and keep in my, uh, my planning book when I used to go out uh, on crisis, uh, crisis events just because it was so mm-hmm. handy, you know, even in something, right. even in a minor situation where I had a student who was upset and I knew that, you know, they were, they were very, uh, very upset, I, I might be able to refer back to the card and get a sense for how I might, you know, work with the student to go through the, uh, to go through their, uh, their grief. So, mm-hmm. yeah, valuable training. Yeah. And I'm very interested in this 32 NCSI uh, organization. So um, when we have this up on a website, I will, I will try my best to put links up so that um, as people uh, are, are, are looking at the resources, that they will click on those links and, and, and uh, become aware of the things that you are promoting. Good. That'd be great. I'd appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. You know, your expertise is just, uh, it's, it's phenomenal, and I've got uh, high respect for the work you do, and I appreciate the, what you've shared with us today and, w- and, um, and the advice you've given to listeners. Well, 
Well, Gabe, thanks so much. It's uh, an honor, truly, you know, to be talking with you. Uh, you know, we've, we've done some things together and trained together, and uh, so I'm really honored that you'd invite me to have this conversation today. Yeah, the feeling's mutual, Will. Take care now. All righty. Bye-bye.